Um, how many of you were part of the core group three months ago when we started this thing? You all got a book. What was, what was that book called? Dang, reaching the un, reaching the unreachable, reaching the un, reaching the unreached. Same thing, like that. That's good. No, you no, you were perfect. That was that was good. That's exactly what it means. Uh, the knucklehead that wrote it is is here today. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, no, not you, Clifton. A different knucklehead. It, it's actually the other bald guy behind you uh, is, is the one. And um, yeah, hey, can you come up here real quick, dude? And his beautiful, wonderful wife Andrea is there too. Not don't want to leave her out. She's the one that puts up with him and feeds him and gets him in the shower. Gets gets a <laughs> good to see you. Uh, eight and a half years ago, I think we started the door. Before we started the door, God dropped this guy into my life. Um, we knew we were going to plant a church in Three Rivers. Uh, didn't know what it looked like. Didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we were we were probably going to go in and blow some stuff up. And he had just got back from Wales. Uh, where he was doing some some church planning back there, um, and ended up in Sun River, and God put him in front of me one day, and it was before the door even had a name, and uh, and you and I just started having coffee and meals and 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 talking about church planning. So this guy was a huge um, part that God used component uh, to where the door is today, and and what it is and what it's doing. You know, I mean, all glory be to God, but this this was the inst- the instrument that God used for what we're seeing continue to unfold. So um, I just think that's really cool, and I wanted to make sure you knew who he was. Um, I get the book. Yeah, it's good. Shameless plug for the book. Did you want to say anything or no? Are you good? Um, what have you been up to? Just that uh, I'm so proud of uh, the work that God's done. Uh, David is an amazing guy. I know you guys know that. Um, uh, I, I can take, like, very little credit. Um, Dave got to read my very first book. Uh, when it was in rough draft, in fact, it was so big that my agent was like, hey, no one wants to read a thousand pages about church planning by you. And Dave was eating it up going, this is amazing. I saw the manuscript. And, uh, it's like that thick sitting it, on my shelf. Yeah. So which that now is a textbook that Zondervan is going to do on church planning the other way. Like, you know, the stuff that when you start a church and it looks more like the book of Acts kind of deal, you know, where you actually need the Holy Spirit to turn up. Um, you know, you can't do it yourself. There's no shake and bake. There's no five easy dance steps. It's kind of you and the Holy Spirit or bust. Um, that's the book that's been, and he, he read all that in the, in the early days. And, um, just really, to be honest, it, it's such a privilege. I was like a kid going to Disneyland this morning. I couldn't wait to get here. To me, this right here is the good stuff. No matter what God does with this church, and I'm sure you're just one of many. You know, I, I went to the old building on, on, on accident this morning. Um, so your sign was there and, you know, Dave was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I sent you to the wrong spot. And, uh, well, I went on the website, but I said, it's okay, man. You're just leaving your mark all over town. Like, I'm sure that's what God wants to do anyway. So, uh, only to say, um, it's an honor and a privilege for me to be here. Some of you that, that are in here this morning, you don't even know God yet. And that to me is awesome. You don't even know him yet. And you think you got it all figured out. And God is about to do a work in your life. And you don't even know yet. And you don't even think he's real yet. And he's going to turn you inside out. Mm. Which is awesome. Because I know this guy was just like you. And this guy was just like you. 
And here we are today. And others of you are, hey, I don't even know if God can use me at all. And uh, you just wait. So this is this is where it's all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. And everybody's gifts gets used. And the Holy Spirit just starts working through everybody. So this is the fun stuff. Yes, it Glad is. to be here. Do you want to just love this guy? No, 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 no. <laughs> just roll with it, brother. Thank you, my friend. Okay. You guys got your weapons? Galatians. We're actually gonna we're gonna start going through a book. So we're going to start in Galatians. We figured it was an appropriate place to start, and you will soon know why. If you go to 2 Corinthians, hang a right. If you go to Ephesians, hang a left, and you will find it. If you're new, and some of you are new, church is um, not a normal thing for you, and you might be thinking, like, why do these people always do this? Why do they come and, like, open this old book and read through letters that are thousands of years old? Like, why do they do that? And the reason we do it, I think, is is probably best described by uh, by Paul to a young man named Timothy. He says, uh, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, the reason why the church gets together and reads through letters that are thousands of years old, is because we want to hear God talk to us. I don't know about you, but I would not come in and listen to me talk to you. And most of the people, some of you are like really um, good communicators, and I, and I still wouldn't come every week in the snow to hear from you. Our problem is when we sit around and we start to wonder uh, or, or think about what God is to us or how God might be when we come around each other and we start talking about what God means to us or how I feel about God that's how cults start like that's how we're going to get in trouble I want to hear from God like all week I've been in a world that's been flinging junk onto me and it sticks and I need to go somewhere to get it washed off and the word of God does that when we come to the Bible It points us true north. It says this is absolute truth. And it calibrates our minds again. It allows us then to spot the lies and to tell them to leave. Because we're hearing from God. The Word of God is breathed out by God. That's why when we come, the centerpiece of this table that we set is His Word above all else. So Galatians, I bit off way, way more than I could chew. Like, I messed up this week. Um, most of you who know me, I'm like a two-verse, three-verse guy. Um, and so um, this week I kind of, I took the, I want to take the first um, nine verses. And uh, don't worry, we'll get through it. Um, the food will still be warm. Um, but the reason I did it is because we're starting this book, and I don't like—I I don't want just to do a running commentary with you. I don't—I don't—I don't want to go through the ins and outs and ins and outs of who might have wrote it and when it might have been written and what specifically, who specifically it might have been written to. Like all that stuff matters. But in this book, that's all answered in one through nine. That's why I kind of like stuffed it. So um, bear with me. This won't be too bad. Let's read this. Galatians, letter of Paul to the Galatians. 
Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. That's pretty heavy duty. Like Paul's just throwing a fastball over the plate right here. You know what I mean? Like this is what this book's about. Everything that follows is a contention for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are going to have any kind of impact in this community, in the lives of people who do not yet know God, we must carry with us the true gospel. Because in the true gospel, not a substitute gospel, is where the power of God is unto salvation. Lives are changed. Sins are forgiven. When we preach the real Christ and the real work of Christ, that's why we're starting in this book. This book matters. We need to have both feet firmly fixed on the person and work of Jesus and not a variation, not a partial tale of what Jesus did and who he was. And there are a lot of them out there today, guys. There are so, there, 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 are so there are so many streams that are crossed now with the gospel that it's hard to even decipher them when someone's throwing it at you. We want you guys to know and be clear what the true gospel is. And I think you can hear it in Paul's voice here just by reading through these first nine verses that this is like of utmost importance to him for these people to be firmly established in the true gospel. So, here's where we start. Who wrote the book? I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say Paul wrote it. Okay, I know that's crazy, uh, but but I'm going to go with that uh, just because of the opening name. All right? And, and I know this sounds stupid, like I'm being a little sarcastic, because, like, when you go into a book and you start reading commentators and, like, higher criticism on books and stuff, they all will question everything. And it's just, it's just become so boring to me. Like, I'm, like, Paul wrote it. Which Paul? I'm going to go farther out on the limb and say the Apostle Paul. Right? I mean, that's who he says he was. So we'll, we'll just go with that. Now, since Paul's going to come out swinging here, um, he's not messing around. It makes sense that the first thing that he starts with, the first thing that he's going to establish is his apostolic authority. And he does that here. He's, 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 he's adding some weight to the words that are about to come out of his mouth. Okay? And 
Part of how he does that is by clarifying how he came to be an apostle. Because how Paul became an apostle is a little bit unique. It's a little bit different. How did the rest of the apostles become apostles? Let's say the other 11. Absolutely. They were handpicked by Jesus while Jesus walked on earth. How did Paul become an apostle? He was handpicked by Jesus after Jesus left the earth. Right? It's a little bit, little bit different. Eleven were picked during the life of Jesus. One was picked through the revelation of Jesus. Which is why Paul says he became an apostle not from men or through men, but from and through God, both the Father and the Son, picked by the one who was raised from the dead as well as by the one who raised him from the dead. The Father-Son deal. In other words, Paul's got some credibility, right? Like I would say he does. Like he's got some gospel cred. Like he's got some apostolic authority. By the way, I cannot walk in here and make that statement to you that Paul makes. Just so you know, I can't do it. We're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit later. But as a pastor and a church planner, the reason I plant churches and teach God's word and shepherd the people of God is because other men in the faith and faithful elders and leaders over me in my life saw that calling on me, affirmed it, and sent me. That's why I'm doing I am not here because I voted myself in. Just so you know, I am not self-appointed. I am not someone who woke up one day out of my video game slumber and said, I think I'm going to start a church. That sounds fun. Like it, like it, it just wasn't on my radar. I'm not here because I wanted to be or because I chose to be or I thought, there's something special about me. God really needs me. In fact, I kicked and screamed all the way here. I, I pushed against God when I, when I sensed, when I first sensed years ago that he was pulling me into ministry. I kind of knew what was going on, and I just didn't, I wasn't having it. I didn't want anything to do with it because I knew it would change and uproot everything in my life. And I was a little too selfish. I still battle with that. I go back and forth. About every other week, I have a debate inside my head of, of whether I should stay or go. You know what I mean? Like, that's how crazy I am. Like, the only reason I'm here is because there's other men who are faithful and godly and trustworthy that know me from the outside saying, God's doing this with you. I don't trust myself. And you shouldn't either. This is why we need to surround ourselves with godly people who won't tell us what we want to hear, but simply what's true. We need, we need truth spoken to us. And this isn't just for parts of your life. This is for every area of your life. This is God's means of keeping the bumpers up for us. Is, is good godly people around us that speak into our lives. I was appointed by man, and I was appointed through men. That's why I'm here. But Paul was not. Paul was different. In fact, if you know anything about the book of Acts, when he first goes to the other 11 in Jerusalem, they don't know what to do with this dude. If somebody ever comes to you with a private, unique self-appointment, 
Run. I'm serious. Just run. Because if someone in the church today claims to be unique, bringing with them a unique revelation, they're about to pour you some Kool-Aid. Paul had an extremely unique story, though, and calling, which is an extremely important inclusion he makes here due to who the Galatians were, which brings us to part two. Who were the Galatians? Who are the people that he's writing to? Um, I'm, I'm going to go with the end of verse two. The Galatians. Uh, notice that Paul's not writing to just one localized congregation, but multiple congregations in the providence of Galatia. It says here to the churches plural, of Galatia. And so this would be uh, similar to like if, um, uh, if, if Peyton uh, sent a letter to the churches in Central Oregon, okay? Uh, you, would, you would have a, a place that's regionalized. So you've got multiple congregations that are receiving the same message, um, not just one, not just the runt, you know, in the litter, but they're all like getting on the same page, Okay. Paul wants all these guys on the same page. He's speaking to different congregations here. Now, there's some different thoughts on which part of Galatia uh, that Paul is specifically zeroing in on. Is it the uh, the north, the northern part of the province? Was it the southern end? Honestly, it just really doesn't matter. It it really doesn't. Uh, it makes more sense more to me that it's probably the southern half of the province of Galatia, where we clearly see cities in the book of Acts that Paul traveled to and established churches in. He was familiar with them on a personal level during his first missionary journey. Um, cities like Lystra, Iconium, Derby. If you look on a map at Galatia, they're all concentrated together. And you can see them in Acts 13 and 14 and 15 um, bumping through these cities from one to the next. So here's this concentrated area where he would have known these people and would have been the one that preached the gospel to these people. Probably the southern end. But as we're going to see, it really doesn't matter. This book is for each and every one of us. We are 2,000 years removed from the culture and the people that he's talking to, and this book is every bit as necessary today to the church in America as it was then to the churches in Galatia. What were the Galatian people like? They looked a lot like us. As far as citizens, again, they might, they might, they might be far removed. But same stuff. They look like modern-day Americans, the more I looked at it. Um, here's what Caesar said of the Galatian people at the time. The infirmity of the Gauls, which are the Galatians, is that they're fickle in their resolves, fond of change, and not to be trusted. Another historian described the Galatians as frank, impetuous, impressionable, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconsistent, the fruit of excessive vanity. Sounds kind of like us. Fickle, not very constant. So it was a throwaway society, basically, in about every way. 
continually moving on to the next whatever. Do you guys do that in your lives? We do that with our trends. We do that with our interests. We do that with our cars. We do that with our presidents. We're constantly moving on to the next thing really quick. One day we vote presidents into the office. The next day we crucify them. It's so funny to me when I look at approval polls. It's always been this way. I scratch my head. When you look at an approval poll after someone's voted in, it's like, who in the world voted this person in? Nobody's approving. It's the weirdest thing. We do the same thing with our sports teams, too. We're the biggest fans in the world when they're doing good. When they're not, we're running the team. We know what needs to be done. That dude needs to go. That dude needs to go. We're all like, we're all armchair quarterbacks, like in the worst way. We act like we know how to run the team when they're doing bad. I think the most telling thing that we have here, though, about the Galatians, the piece of information that I think tells us the most is found in Acts 14. You can go there if you want, but I'm going to go ahead and, and like, narrate this for you just for the sake of time. This is where Paul and Barnabas first walk in to Lystra. And they preach the gospel just like they do. They're moving from place to place. They're preaching the gospel to people. People are getting saved. Churches are being established and planted. And they go into this place, and they get a big crowd together, and they start preaching the gospel. And it says in the text that Paul sees this dude off to the side that hasn't walked since he was born. And and the text says that Paul looks at him intently, knowing that this man has faith to be healed. And so Paul turns at him in front of the crowd and says, get up on your feet and walk. And he does. And what do the people do. They lift them up on their shoulders and they call them gods. They say the gods have come down in the form of man. And they call Barnabas um, Zeus and they call Paul Hermes and they start offering sacrifices to these guys and worshiping them as gods. It's ridiculous, but it's right there in the text. 14. Fast forward to a couple days later. They're dragging Paul outside the city and killing him. We're talking days. One day, they're making them gods. The next day, they think they should be murdered. And they're killing them. That's the Galatians. That's the people that we're talking about here. Inconsistent, a little bit blown about. They soon changed their mind on Paul. And they're now changing their mind on the gospel that Paul brought them. That's what's going on here. And that gospel which Paul brought them, he reminds them of in short form in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Look how he starts. Grace and peace from God our Father. He starts with grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. He starts with grace to them and peace. What is peace? Reconciliation. It's a relationship reconciled that was once broken. And who's the one doing it? 
What does Paul say? From God, our Father. How did he reconcile us by grace? By giving himself for our sins. There's the gospel. There's the gospel. I don't care who you are. We can all, we can all give that. Jesus Christ died for our sins. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing more to be done. It says that he delivered us from the present evil age according to his will. What Christ did in dying on the cross for our sins, by his grace, has delivered us. It has delivered us from everything that we desperately needed to be delivered from. There is no more delivering to do. Why is he saying this? Because this church in Galatia is being taught and told that there's more to do. There is no more delivery that needs to be accomplished with the gospel of Christ. It has been done. It is, in his words, finished. It's finished. And these guys just don't know it yet. It is by faith in this gospel that all the glory is God's. Do you get that? Do you get that the gospel work is God's work? It's God's work. It's, it's not ours. And so, like, the glory all goes to God. It's not 50-50. It's not 80-20. It's not 99-1. It's all His glory because it's all His work. He alone is the Savior. If you and I could do it, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. It would have been unnecessary if there was a way for you and I to figure out our righteous, our, our dilemma of righteousness. But there wasn't. Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden the night before he went to the cross saying, Father, if there's any other way, let's take that route. Let's ditch this one and let's do the other one. And he went to the cross because there was no other way. And that entire work was Christ. How can, how, can, how can you add to perfection? How can you make something that's perfect better? That's why this letter is being written. Because if we try to, we actually kill the gospel. We actually throw it on its head. All right, we've got to keep moving her work. I'm already smelling garlic bread, so I don't know what's going on. Maybe she can just bring it out to you guys on a tray while we do this. Which brings us to why is the letter written? We're getting there. I know we look far off, but we're like, we're getting there. And I, and I might, look, my intention, guys, is not ever, um, to pick on people, um, for the reason of being, uh, just malicious or, or self-righteous, like I'm better than somebody else. But I'm gonna probably throw out a few things here in this next section that, um, I don't know, maybe I'll get some emails. I hope not. I hope you see my heart. I hope you see Paul's heart in what he's doing here. Because the real gospel is under attack. What 6 and 7 tells us, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What that tells us, is that there's only one gospel, Paul says that, 
but many distortions of it, many perversions of it. There are many gospel imposters. There were then, and there are now. This is why we must not only own 50 Bibles, and we all do. We must know our Bibles. If we do not know what our Bible says, we will believe anything. The evangelical landscape in America today would indicate that we're not using our Bibles well. Because modern-day America doesn't look much different than first-century Galatia. We have multiple movements, multiple movements, spreading across the land like cancer, masquerading as Christianity, and masquerading as the gospel, and they're not. Here are the three most popular, and this is why I'm going to say them. It's because you need to know what they are. One of the most popular ones today for us that we have turned to, perversion of the gospel, is the prosperity gospel. This false gospel teaches that if you come to Jesus, he will make this life, in a worldly sense, better now. Does the gospel make our lives better now? Absolutely. But not because of what we get from it, but what it has done in us and to us. It is Christ in me that causes me to look at everything that goes on in my life around me different than I otherwise would. My car still breaks down. I still get sick. I still lose people that I love. What do I see when I see that? Do I see a God that's not keeping his word because I came to Jesus? Or am I seeing the realities of a broken world which desperately needs him? With the prosperity gospel, the primary reason to come to Jesus so that your life now is good, so that, so that it's quote-unquote blessed, and in health and wealth sense, does Jesus heal? Absolutely. Always? No. No, he, he just doesn't. This gospel teaches that there is no, we shouldn't have any struggle, we shouldn't have any strife, we shouldn't have any poverty, we shouldn't have any pain, we shouldn't have any bad things happen to us. No bad days. It's a lie. Because what happens when there are bad days? What does that make God look like? I don't even know where to begin with the amount of scriptures against this false gospel. Like just the ones from Jesus alone. You know? There's a few things that Jesus promises to his followers. Here's one. In this world, you will have tribulation. Like he promises that in this world, you're going to have tribulation. He does not say what that's going to look like, but we all know what it feels like. In our own way, we all know that it exists. Then he says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Praise God for that. That's why Jesus is necessary to everybody. In other words, even though you trust me, you will be susceptible to every form of tragedy and pain that this world has to offer, but it's worth it on the backside because I'm doing something. Right now I'm doing something. 
Some of you need to hear this today and believe this because some of you are in a tight spot. When you lose your job, when you lose your child, when you get diagnosed with cancer, take heart because what is coming far outweighs every bit of it. You believe that? Jesus is saying, I've got you. I've got you. You're going to feel and experience things you don't want to right now, but soon, no more. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know Christ, this is the worst hell you'll ever experience. Jesus did not come to make this life better. He came to make eternity unimaginably worth everything that we experience in this life. If you measure God's goodness and acceptance and approval towards you according to how well your life's going, you have believed a false gospel. Just follow the river of blood through the history of the church. Number two, this one's picking up steam. Signs and wonders gospel. I know. Signs and wonders. This gospel teaches that Christianity is all about having a God experience. If you come to God, you'll experience Him in miraculous ways. I've had a lot of God experiences in my life. I've been a Christian for 28 years, but most of them have been at the woodshed, not at the top of Mount Sinai. Let me qualify this. Do we believe that God can do anything and everything? We have a virgin birth. We have a sea parted. We have a resurrection from the dead. There is nothing that God cannot do. I'm not questioning any of that. This gospel, though, is not so much about what you believe to be true, but what you see and what you feel. It is based primarily on and around emotions, which are God-given, and the miraculous, which, again, God can do. I do not, with this one, know where to start again with the Scriptures. I do not know how, where, where to begin with it. One being that we walk by faith, not by sight. That the just shall live by faith. Not by what we see or experience, because that doesn't require faith. Hebrews tells us that. Without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. And yet one of the fastest growing evangelical movements of our day is one of signs and wonders. It's known as the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for some of this, but we're doing it. The epicenter, the epicenter, the petri dish of this false gospel is found in Redding, California at a church called Bethel. And this is where some of you are going, I love Bethel. There might be some things to love there. I don't know. But like, check yourself at the door with your Bible. 
Let me give you the most recent example that's come out of Bethel of the danger of it. On December 13th, a two-year-old girl named Olive was found by her parents not breathing. This family goes to Bethel, in which they rushed their daughter to the hospital as quick as they could. And the most unspeakable thing happened to that young couple. They lost their daughter. I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose one of your kids. Mine are adult kids, and I just don't know what I, I just don't know what I would how I would deal with that. Your two-year-old little precious girl. After rushing her to the hospital, she was pronounced dead. For the last three weeks since that's happened, those parents and those pastors of that church and that congregation has been holding marathon sessions of prayer and worship for little Olive. Do you know why? In expectation that God will raise her from the dead right now. They are not accepting that God has taken that little girl. That's hard. They're not believing that God is going to give her back. Or they are believing that God is going to give her back through a resurrection because God is all about doing the miraculous. Question, what happens when little Olive doesn't come back? What happens to those parents' faith when little Olive doesn't come back from the dead? What happens to that congregation and those young people and those other young families and teenagers that are sitting in these sessions and watching this? What happens to their faith when little Olive doesn't come back? What does that say about God? Was God wrong? Did he mess up? Was he unable? When you teach people that this is the reason to come to God, you're killing who God is. You are giving a false testimony. Lives have been ruined. They've been coming out of Bethel by the grace of God. Some people are having their eyes open. But people, there are a lot of guys going in. Pray for these people. Pray for what's going on there. Pray that they would fall in love with the real Jesus for the real reason. Finally, the, 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 the third most popular false gospel, the one that's always been the most popular and the one that always will be, is works righteousness gospel. This is the one that you and I, I think most of us in this room, are better at than we care to acknowledge. This is the oldest form of false gospel, and it happens to be the one that Paul's writing the Galatians about right here in this book. We're doing the exact same thing. We need this epistle in the American church. We need it in our lives. I need it in my life. Because my default is not to fall onto the cross of Christ and receive all the grace. My default when I screw up or things are going sideways is for me to fix it somehow, to do something. This gospel says that we're saved by Jesus plus something else. 
yeah, Jesus died for us, but we have to go to church. Jesus died for us, but we have to tithe. Jesus died for us, but we have to be a better person than when we are a bad person. We've got to be more good than bad in our lives. We've got to tip the scales. We've got to be a Republican. We've got to pray every night. Kirk, don't make me come over there. We've got to pray every night before we go to bed. We have to get circumcised. Some of you chicks are like, what are you talking about? We'll get there. Like fill in the blank. Like, like the whole thing about this false gospel is Jesus plus something else. And it's wrong. This gospel tells us that we have to earn or merit or work or perform somehow to receive the approval and acceptance of God. And praise God, that's not true. It's known as salvific synergism. Two people, two parties working together to make something happen. We work together with God to make it happen, and it's just garbage. And it's extremely dangerous, as we're going to see in this letter. Look at the way Paul's responding to these people. Like he's not okay with it. Works righteousness is not something that's no big deal or fairly harmless for someone to believe and practice. It is contra-gospel. It is actually against the gospel. Please listen. Any attempt to add to the gospel by human effort becomes a denial of grace, thus rendering Christ's death pointless. It's an actual denial of grace. It actually kills the gospel and undoes its power. And it robs God of His glory. What's going on here in Galatia as we'll see as we move further into this letter, is that an outside party called the Judaizers are placing works onto these new converts as a requirement for salvation. And unfortunately, they're buying it. And there's no salvation in that. This is why Paul's astonished. And he's not playing around. Eight and nine real quick, and then we're done, I promise. Eight and nine. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter who the messenger is if the message is wrong. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter how popular they are. Doesn't matter how likable they are. Doesn't matter how smart they are or how good of a communicator they are or how loving they are to other people. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend or if it's Kanye West. If the message is different than the message. Jesus brought and taught something that was unique but something that was clear. And he's given it to us. If someone's bringing something else, it is not life-giving. It is death-bringing. 
Paul says here, even if it's an angel. An angel. Does that sound familiar? We have one of those. We have a pretty good-sized religion in this country that's, that's, in all fairness, all across the world. And it's because a dude had a private briefing with an angel. And that angel gave that guy additional revelation, new revelation. And here's this new thing. Even an angel, Paul says here. He says, if it ain't the gospel that Jesus left, leave it. It's bad and it's dangerous. Most people, this is the weirdest thing to me, this astonishes me to steal a a word from Paul. Most people, even people who claim to be Christians these days, have a very passive, casual, PC response to false gospels, religions, and teachings. I don't get it. They say things like, I think it's fine that people believe what they believe as long as they believe in something. Just give them a kiss while they go to hell, you know? Paul would say, get behind me, like you're anathema, you're a curse. Paul was not fine with it, and he would wanted to make sure that his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ were not fine with it either, because this is how apostasy happens. This is how people fall away from truth. This is how cults start. This is how Satan empties the church. By a little bit of leaven, mixed with a little bit of truth and a whole lot of lie, And boom, the bomb goes off and the sheep go off the cliff. Paul says here, don't take lightly what I'm saying to you. Take this serious. If someone is preaching a false gospel among you, show them the door. No pun intended. It works either way, though. Show them the door. Do not use pleasantries. Do not pack them a sandwich in a blanket. They're anathema and a curse. Paul is not being a jerk here, guys. And I'm not trying to be either. And I have looked like one because I take this very seriously over and over again. And I think I'm okay with it. Like at first it hurts and then I get over it. Paul's not, Paul's not being a jerk here. He's being a shepherd. This is what a shepherd looks like. Feeds the sheep, shoots the wolves. That's what shepherds do. We've been here for eight and a half years, the door. We've had two different times when people have come in with false gospels and sought to leaven and shipwreck all these young converts that were in our congregation. And it was the hardest thing for us to work through properly as shepherds. One of them was in year two. We were new. We didn't know what we were doing. And we had just... We had a room full of people that were new to the faith and they were on fire and they were vibrant and they were wanting more of God. And here came this young family that were beautiful, that were magnetic in their personality, super attractive, like in all ways. They always have the nice teeth. They're always funny. They're witty. You know, the good hair. Uh, they came in, and, and everyone just fell in love with this couple and embraced them immediately. And we had a dude at our church that gave them, that rented a room to them, right, because they needed a place to stay. And people would go over to this house. It was a big house. And they would play games, and they would eat constantly. People from the congregation, there was a ton of just awesome fellowship going on there. And a couple months later, we started hearing things. 
coming out of some of our people that were being taught that were just off. They just sounded a little wrong. And a little farther down the road, we realized that they were completely wrong. Like the things they were being taught was off. And we had to go to this young man. And we had to encourage him to repent with Scripture. And we reasoned with him with Scripture. And he wasn't having it. He was part of a holiness movement. He was teaching everybody that you're without sin now. Like you do not sin in your life. And if you do, you have a problem with Jesus and Jesus has a problem with you. That it's possible for us to be completely sanctified and holy. And our people were so young that they were buying it. This was a great guy. He knew how to speak well. He knew his scriptures well. None of that mattered at this point. Like he had already shot, he had already poisoned the water hole. You know what I mean? So now we're about damage control. And we went to this guy with love and he would not hear us. And we finally had to do the the hard thing and ask him and his wife to leave. And there are people that hated us for it. And it's okay. I get it. They didn't understand with tears, some of them, why we would send this young couple off that is such a cool young couple. And some of them never recovered. It is not the easy thing to do, but do you know why we did it? Not to be jerks. To be shepherds. To protect the once-for-all gospel that Christ has delivered to. By the grace of God, that's what the door is. This is a place where anybody can come in and get the real Jesus and the real work that He did. It's not about us. It's the message that has the power. And as long as we are faithful to that message and we peddle that message, we implore people to receive that message. We're doing our job. We're doing what God has left us here to do. God builds His kingdom out of that. We are not a perfect church. We have a lot of faults. We have a lot of errors. But I hope that that is never one of them where we move on to a substitute gospel. I love you guys. I'm sorry that I kept you so long. I hope you understand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. There is nothing in this life that we need more than the forgiveness that comes through the work that You accomplished on our behalf. There is no greater need and we confess that. Even if our lives go bad, even on our darkest days, You have done it all. Thank You that there is now, because of that, grace and peace to the recipients of that gift. That there is no more enmity between us, God, but that that is a relationship that is completely reconciled. That we have gone from enemies to full children is an amazing thing. Help this church to be known for carrying that Gospel and living in that Gospel and proclaiming that Gospel 
to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.